The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not ready. It's for various factions under him, and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit, and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There's certain key things that we want from India, and there's certain key things that they want from us. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Caroline, can I start by offering you some motivational words? Looking around this table, I know that we have an energetic and enthusiastic team that is going to deliver for the country. So let's get to work. Thanks very much. That was the Prime Minister chairing the first meeting of his new cabinet after yesterday's dramatic reshuffle. The fallout of that still rippling through Westminster. Um, I don't know if that how you rate that in motivational speeches, Caroline. Uh, look, I I think it's a very difficult thing, isn't it, for the prime minister to look like the change. Is, is David Cameron judging him from across the table? Is he well, thinking, well, I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> I, I listen. I think it's it's um, you know the, the whole point was meant to be another reset, but we've had quite a number of them. Look, I think Sunak looked um, a little bit nervous as ever. Must have been quite weird for David Cameron to return to number ten, um, and there were also obviously the the new changes in. Cabinet there on display. I mean, as scales of resets go, this is a proper unplug it and plug it back in again <laughs> sort of change. Because we've been talking about this idea that Richie Sunak's tried on so many occasions to to reset his agenda. It does seem like this time it's a bit more far-reaching. That's not been without consequence, though. We already had one uh, letter of no confidence in the Prime Minister submitted by the former Junior Minister Andrea Jenkins. That was over at Suella Braverman's sacking from the Cabinet. Does it pose a real threat to Richie Sunak? Very um, difficult to tell how serious, I suppose, that I, I don't. This stage. It doesn't seem to be enormously serious, but the issue is, of course, around the the right of the party, and this does seem to be now that the top officers of state are sort of quite centrist, quite pragmatic, quite old school conservatives, one nation conservatives, maybe, um, and that that will displease the right of the party. That That's the big challenge, isn't it, it seems. Yeah, and a few new cast members as well to fit into that conversation around the cabinet table too. A few job changes, the likes of Steve Barkley going to environment from the health brief, Victoria Atkins taking over as health secretary, um, Laura Trott brought in to the cabinet as chief secretary of the treasury, uh, replacing John Glenn as well. So a few new voices 
things, mm. among them being fit in. How the public perceives all of this should be interesting. Savanta resurfaced its polling around David Cameron after his appointment as Foreign Secretary, um, saying that only 24% of adults in the UK viewed him favourably compared to 45% of viewed him unfavourably. That's, of course, when he was not in frontline politics. Now and he's back. Well, what I love about the pollsters is that they've managed to keep track of David Cameron seven years out of frontline politics. This survey was only conducted a month ago. Yeah, so they were still asking people about David Cameron. Came in handy, though, didn't it? How does also Cameron fit in with this uh, sort of election-type slogan that Sunak has, long-term decisions for a brighter future? Yeah, of course, he takes on the job of Foreign Secretary with his own unique set of political baggage, including promising and delivering the Brexit referendum, uh, the so-called golden era of relations with China, and his role as an advisor to the collapsed green cell capital. So to discuss this, we're joined by a trio of Bloomberg experts, our own enthusiastic team <laughs> around the table. Our city editor, Catherine Griffiths, is here with us. Bloomberg TV anchor and longtime China correspondent, Tom McKenzie, and our UK government editor, Alan Alex Morales as well. Alex, I, I want to start with you and the issue of Brexit. Of course, David Cameron called a referendum on Brexit, then campaigned against it, then resigned when it didn't go his way. How much of what happened since can be attributed to his legacy, do you think? Well, arguably, um, just about every, everything that's happened since um, is his legacy. Um, and it's it's sort of um, unfortunate for Cameron that he spent six years as prime minister and that his legacy is the sort of psychodrama that's that's followed in the Tory party since then in delivering Brexit um, because at the end of the day it was it was a referendum he didn't really have to promise in the first place um, he he made the promise I think um, at Bloomberg headquarters in 2013 um, I won't say this office because we've moved since um, but yeah it, it was a pledge he didn't have to make and he probably thought he wouldn't ever have to deliver on it because all the polling leading up to the 2015 general election um, didn't seem to suggest the Tories would win an outright majority um, and p- perhaps there was an expectation that that the the referendum promise was one thing that would be bartered away in renewed coalition negotiations with the Liberal Democrats um, but but he won a surprise majority and 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 then followed through in his um his referendum promise um and and it's it's something that you know in his negotiations with his eu counterparts he he told them don't worry i'm a winner he thought he could win this referendum and he lost it um and uh, quit immediately um, and everything that's followed since is is largely down to that decision. Yeah, I mean, it's staggering. It has dominated. Um, I mean, you call it a psychodrama. It's also simply the economic impact, and uh, you know, the societal impact it's had on the UK has, has been enormous. The other issue, though, around David Cameron, I want to bring um, Tom McKenzie in on this, is that he also famously heralded in this golden era of relations with China. And again, that's an issue that sort of could come back around, you know, uh, Xi Jinping's meeting with Joe Biden this week. Um, and the, the the relationship of the West to China is so enormously important. But you sort of have, have said that we have to think about it in its time frame, don't we? Do, do you think that's going to be a challenging point? I do think that it's important for the context to bring in where we were geopolitically at this time. China was not threatening to move away from its pledges around universal suffrage for the people of Hong Kong. It had made moves to build out its islands in the South China Sea, but the UK was kind of happy to turn a blind eye to that, as was, frankly, the US on some level. There was 
some signs that there was repression starting to happen in Xinjiang, but nothing on the scale that we've seen. You basically did not have a president, President Xi Jinping, who was being as assertive, as aggressive as he has been in recent times. Mm. So that context is important. The Europeans were very happy to pursue constructive relations with China. Obama was going through his Asia pivot. So to some extent, the US was taking a slightly more divergent plant, was starting to make a play for a slightly more hawkish stance on China than previously. But certainly the Europeans and the UK were of the view that having a constructive relationship with China was important. And David Cameron, along with George Osborne, who was really the principal architect of the golden era, was central to that. And they wanted to be ahead of the French. They wanted to be ahead of the Germans. You had, for example, the Treasury issuing renminbi bonds in 2014 you had the opening of the investment into hinkley nuclear power point that was allowed to pass under cameron osborne. so maybe it was of its time essentially it was of that, its time but certainly attitude. certainly the osborne cameron in lockstep partnership there was a determination for the uk to get the biggest slice of the pie that they could in terms of that uk china relationship and to get ahead of their certainly <coughs> of their, ahead of their european counterparts in forging that closer relationship does that mean that there'll be people rubbing their hands with glee in Beijing that he's back? I think you there's a risk of overreading that. Look, Dave, you know, the idea that David Cameron is going to come in as foreign secretary with iron plated views on China that he has pulled out of his pocket from 2015, I think is is slightly naive. So I think the analysis and the critique on that front is slightly slightly overdone. But this is a former prime minister who worked with an investment fund around Xi Jinping's key policy, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, raising about a billion dollars to try and align with that policy. So he has had that relationship. He was a prime minister who made sure that the UK was a founding member, not just a member, but a founding member of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank in Beijing, much to the chagrin of the Americans at the time and mm. to some political fallout with the Obama administration. And then again, importantly, out of office, he had had these relationships. So it's not inconsequential, but I do think that David Cameron if you look back at his political history, is probably supple enough as a politician to adjust to the here and now of policy when it comes to China. And the changes that have come into effect after Sunak said that that era was naive and described it as naive. Yeah, and maybe it's even a foreign policy issue that is further down the, down the list um, in terms of the enormous challenges that the world faces at the moment for you know the Middle East, Ukraine and so on. But when you talk about sort of subtlety and, and um, ability... We saw a little bit of that, didn't we, with with David Cameron um, only earlier today. He was asked about another sort of controversial point, his involvement with Greensill Capital um, after being appointed Foreign Secretary. Here's what he had to say uh, on that issue. Have a listen. Well, I think all those things were dealt with by the Treasury Select Committee. And as far as I'm concerned, that is all dealt with and in the past. And I now have one job as Britain's Foreign Secretary, as part of Rishi Sunak's team, to try and make sure this country can be as secure and as prosperous in a difficult and dangerous world. So the issue around Greensill was an accusation of lobbying. Catherine, I want to go to you on this, our city editor, of course. Um, I think you can probably best unpack exactly, you know, what Cameron's involvement in Greensill Capital was or what the controversy was all about. Yeah, so... Um, Lex Greensill had in fact worked for David Cameron 
when David Cameron was Prime Minister, if, if everyone cast their minds back, there was a sort of it turned out there was this rather extraordinary situation where Lex Green still had an office in mm. Downing Street, which was a, stri- a slightly strange thing. Um, so then when Cameron so so sort of abruptly left office, um, just two years later, he got this job for Lex Greensill at what was then a sort of completely unknown and strange business, supply chain finance, Greensill Capital, as an advisor. Um, now, David Cameron has decided to never actually just be straightforward about how much he earned in that part-time role, but it's been reported in many different places that it was about a million dollars a year, which is obviously a substantial sum, um, one that one might imagine one one might remember. Um, and and then the reason, of course, is he got into trouble was Greensill went down and then there was an enormous focus on what that business did and its links to government. And it turned out that David Cameron had used his sort of many, you know, phone numbers he had in his phone to text and phone up and also email all his old chums in government to say, come on, how about Greensill get some of this COVID loans money um, that the government was trying to distribute to support the economy? Now, the Treasury Select Committee looked into what went on and issued a report that was really quite critical of David Cameron, questioned his judgment, but there wasn't ultimately any sort of finding of absolute serious, um, you know, illegal action at all. The Serious Fraud Office is still looking at Greensill and its links to Sanjeev Gupta's business, the steel business, um, but we don't know what's going to happen with that. I mean, I think if we're being sensible, the government has clearly looked at this risk and presumably are of the view that nothing is going to be turned up that shows that Cameron himself has done anything illegal. But I suppose, um, as as that clip you, we've just listened to reflects, Cameron has not at any point really sort of expressed any sort of real regret about his actions. He's talked about it being in the past. At the time, he talked about lessons learned, but in a very general sense, and not really sort of um, taking any kind of proper responsibility or, or showing true self-reflection. And interesting to, to th- I suppose, think about how those questions may come up again facing David Cameron in the future as well. More broadly, Catherine, with your city editor hat on, will there be people in London's financial world who'll be happy to see David Cameron back in government? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they, people will largely be quite happy in the sense that they'll see him as a you know a serious person who, um, on that sort of world stage, can conduct himself appropriately. On the whole, widely, businesses will be pleased to see attack to the centre by Sunak. Mm. Um, but I think what we're really seeing across the board is an increasing engagement with business, with the Labour Party. And obviously, they're sort of keeping a foot in both camps. But for example, um, last week, we saw the Labour Party being able to move ahead by getting a few really big UK financial firms to take part in an infrastructure council it's setting up. And those firms were careful to say this is non-partisan. But I think, you know, there's ever more of a sense of firms choosing to move towards the Labour Party. Mm. I want to return um, to you, Alex, if I may. In ter- we've, we've talked a lot about Cameron and, and his importance in the reshuffle that Rishi Sunak um, undertook. How do you characterise? Is is this kind of bringing in somebody with, in, with heft, with experience and so on, something that could help 
Rishi Sunak going into a, a general election? Or is this a sign of desperation? I suppose that's what everybody is trying to work out. Well, it's it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, it, it, I guess it depends on your politics, whether you decide w- which way around it is. I mean, clearly Sunak thinks that it's to his advantage bringing David Cameron in. Um, he's someone who'll, who'll sort of take over the sort of international brief and I guess allow Sunak to co- uh, to focus more on the domestic stuff. That's what that's what really needs his focus if, if he's going to win an election next year. Um, but but you'd you'd think part of the reasoning is that David Cameron's seen as a sort of consensual centrist um, um, uh, uh, politician who could perhaps um, reduce some of the threat posed by the Liberal Democrats in the so-called blue wall of southern and rural seats, which the Tories might risk losing to the Lib Dems. The problem with that analysis would be that Cameron is still very much tarred with Brexit, and I think a lot of the lot of the Lib Dem the Lib Dem Tory waverers might hold that against him when it comes to a general election. But when it comes to the UK's relationship with the EU, things have improved since the Windsor Framework Agreement. Will David Cameron be the right person to be able to build on that? Well, I mean, I guess if you look back to David, I mean, David Cameron had a pretty fractious relationship with the EU when he was prime minister. But a lot of that stemmed from the fact that the UK was still in the European Union. Um, and he had this sort of large contingency and on the right wing of his party who he was trying to pacify. Um, Brexit sort of done and dusted now. Um, it was more or less put to put to rest with uh, Sunak's Windsor framework earlier in the year. So, so that baggage isn't there anymore. And y- you can imagine that that Cameron's more serious, consensual approach to things w- would probably work quite well in in the EU. And of, and of course, none of the people he was dealing with back, you know, seven eight years ago are are still there, unless you count Mark Rutter, who I think is um, slowly on his way out. Yeah. <laughs> near near the exit or or on the way out as you you say as well Um, this of course is something that we're thinking about in context of of the, 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 the value that David Cameron could bring to those conversations as well, uh, Tom McKenzie, the the sort of this idea that that David Cameron comes back with with all of the the background that you've given us in his relationship with China as well, could it you know change the the game again and it, it you know a new kind of era, perhaps not golden but bronze or silver? Well, China will be hoping that certainly his past and that experience and those connections with China and the initiatives that he pursued in office and out of office will open the door to a less frictional relationship. But in terms of what is happening on the streets of Hong Kong, that was seen as a red line for for the UK government to some extent. 2019, the protests, uh, given our historical connections to that territory. You know, China's not walking her back uh, from from its uh, Mm. very authoritarian approaches and changes around the policy structure in Hong Kong. Uh, in terms of trade, it's worth noting that trade between the two countries, UK and China, was at about 80 billion US dollars under David Cameron. It's now at about 130 billion as of last count. So despite the fact that the political tensions have increased significantly since that quote unquote golden era of 2015, trade flows have continued. And certainly UK businesses with exposure to the Chinese economy, with all its challenges and struggles, will hope that that relationship, that trade flow continues, of course, in that direction. Mm. But it's going to be really fascinating to hear from David Cameron in his first speech about China, whenever that comes. And particularly, you know, given that this is all happening on this week, as you said, when arguably one of the most significant summits of the year is happening between the presidents of China and the US is happening in San Francisco. It's just really, really fascinating timing. So are we going to get a new golden era? I very much doubt it because we have to be in lockstep with the US on terms of security issues, in terms of 
gutting Huawei from our infrastructure and in terms of a focus on spying and cyber activities. But maybe some thawing around the edges and certainly trade flow suggests that in terms of that part of the relationship, that continues in in what many would see as a positive direction. Yeah, but it is one of the great strategic challenges for Britain when it comes to foreign policy and one that David Cameron will have to take forwards. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. That is Tom McKenzie, our longtime China correspondent, Bloomberg TV anchor. And of course, alongside our city editor, Catherine Griffith. Thank you so much for joining us and our UK government editor, ever valuable Alex Morales. Now, Bloomberg has a bombshell story today about how much councils are spending to combat rising homelessness in the capital. London boroughs have paid about £300 million since 2017, buying properties outside of their local area to house people who need it. Our corporate finance are and housing guru Neil Callanan is with us for more on this story. Neil, this is a, a, pe- a great piece of work from yourself and, and Olivia Conateo Hulu as well. Can you take us through what you found and, and why councils are taking these steps? Uh, good morning, Stephen. So we sent a Freedom of Information Act request to all 32 London boroughs and the City of London uh, asking for a breakdown of how much they've been spending to rehouse the homeless outside the area. Uh, and the numbers came back that it's more than 1,000 homes uh, at a total cost of more than of about 300 million. We haven't had uh, a reply from one of the boroughs yet, but uh, that, that in and thereabouts is the numbers that you're looking at. And really, it's a, sh- a sign of how desperate councils are because the massive increase in rents in London in the last three years has really put pressure on services that are offered to homeless people. So a lot of the boroughs are prioritising, obviously, women and children um, in terms of housing priorities, and many men are being told that they need to find other accommodation themselves, which often means uh, sleeping on the streets. So we thought this would be an interesting way into the story, uh, and obviously it's timely given the then Home Secretary a couple of weeks ago was talking about people living on the streets as a lifestyle choice these numbers tend to not bear that out. Yeah, absolutely. And this in the context of the manifesto promise that that Boris Johnson's government made 2019. So this is the last manifesto of this Tory government, which was a pledge to end um, rough sleeping also in England by 2024. And there was also a pledge in there to abolish Section 21. So no fault evictions. Um, And that is the background, really, isn't it, of, of the desperateness of councils. How bad is the homelessness problem? then in, in London and, and England? Yeah, um, London tends to be the epicentre of this. So London has by far the highest proportion of people, even when you adjust for population, uh, who are homeless. There are 150,000 people in temporary accommodation. So they would be B&Bs, maybe mm. even bed sits and so forth that the council is paying for. Half of them are children. Uh, until earlier this year, about 10,000 people were rough sleeping in London. That number seems to have gone down, but about uh, 2,000 of those in the last quarter were new to the streets. And really, that's a reflection of the cost of living crisis and the impact that's having on people's lives. Uh, Homelessness is a very, very complicated situation. There's obviously issues with addiction in many cases, sometimes leading to homelessness, sometimes as a result of homelessness. And early intervention tends to be the best course to get the best outcomes. And so councils, when they're stretched for finance like this, are really, really going to struggle with those problems.
and it's a problem that looks like it could get worse as well. We've been talking a lot about the pressure on the, the rental market here in London and how much rents have gone up at the same time local housing allowances aren't rising. Absolutely, and, and, and on top of that, there's speculation that the government may freeze benefits uh, in the upcoming autumn statement, so that would uh, effectively make people poorer as well. So there is some research out there, analysis, showing that uh, 60,000 people currently renting in the private market may become homeless in the next five years. They're really on the knife edge, really struggling at the moment. Um, and things like this can be enough to tip them over. Um, you know, if you look at the savings rates in the UK... It, the, the number of households are less than £100 in their bank account is extraordinary. Uh, and it, literally one big life event can be enough to pe- tip people mm. into this kind of scenario and situation. Yeah, and as you say, an immensely um, complex situation. And yet there has been a recent success. I mean, due to the pandemic and the difficulties of COVID, um, there was the Everyone In scheme that actually did bring in a lot of people that were sleeping on the streets. And, you know, I I was reading the big issue only this morning. They were talking about how it was an almost an unimaginable triumph. So, you know, there are efforts that work. Is this a sensible move by councils to try to buy up properties to solve this very, very difficult situation. Where are they buying? Yeah, um, to go back a bit, campaigners really felt that they had solved the housing crisis, uh, the homelessness crisis in in the UK, uh, just around the time of austerity. So 2008, 2010, they felt they had gotten to the point where they had systems in place that were going to help people and help avoid these situations happening. Then, of course, we went into an age of austerity. Local authority budgets got a 40% cut in real terms over the following decade. And now, again, we're starting to see that investment in homelessness services as well. Obviously, it's, it's very late on in the day as the economy seems to be going into a recession. But yes, it can be done, definitely. And I do think councils buying homes make sense rather than paying landlords for often substandard accommodation, private rented accommodation tends to be the worst quality accommodation in the UK based on the English housing survey. And and so councils buying things and controlling the outcomes can often be the best situation. Obviously, they have to buy sensibly. There's been some cases where they have bought uh, blocks of apartments that have then had their own troubles with mould and things like that. So uh, as long as they buy sensibly and buy well, then this is part of the solution to the crisis. But part of the issue has been is that this has been very expensive for councils at the time when their finances were already under pressure. I mean, how, how, how much capacity do councils have to be able to spend money on this? Not, not very much. It's a, the sad reality in that case. Um, so 120, almost 120 council leaders recently wrote to the government and said, look, it's so bad that some of us may go bust because of this. Uh, you know, and we've seen a lot of councils make bad f- investment decisions in recent years, trying to get some money in to make over, up for the government cutbacks uh, and making mistakes in investments. And uh, when you look at this, there's an opportunity there that, again, these unexpected costs and unexpected outcomes could lead to um, basically bankruptcies for some of the councils. Wow, this is such an acute issue. Um, Housing something also that the Labour Party have pledged to radically change if they uh, get into government. Your piece seems to suggest that the situation is already in crisis, though, and that building houses is actually a very long term solution to an immediate crisis. Yeah, it it is part of the solution, though. Obviously, you know one of the one of the reasons why we have an acute housing crisis, not just homeless 
homelessness crisis in the UK is that the government stopped building social housing, which pushed everybody into the rental sector uh, on low incomes. Um, there is an opportunity if home builders are pulling back, which they are, and if we are going into a recession, instead of going for austerity, you can counter cyclically invest in housing, keep people in jobs, get more housing for your money because obviously the cost will go down. People will want to keep teams together. Often actually construction companies offer, uh, sorry, work at a loss during downturns because they want to keep teams together. Uh, And you can get significantly better outcomes in terms of uh, the number of houses you deliver by investing in a downturn and also keep people in jobs. Um, That's a decision, that's a political decision that whoever forms the next government will have to take. Okay, Neil Callanan, our corporate finance czar and housing guru, thank you so much for joining us with details uh, of that story today. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.